Let's pray. Father, thank you for time together to look into your word. We're here to uh, lift our voices in one accord. We've done that, Lord. And we're also here to learn for you collectively, Lord, to sit underneath your word, to hear perfect wisdom from God's word. There's nowhere else we can get that. It comes from you and you alone, Lord. So may we count these times as special. And then, Lord, tomorrow we'll wake up and we can open our own Bibles and we can hear from the perfect word as you direct us and instruct us and teach us. So, Lord, we are so grateful for a chance to look into your word tonight. May we not not miss anything, Lord. Enrich our hearts and our souls tonight. Lord, I pray for those who are going through some kinds of struggles. Lord, we have dear ones that have lost family members. Mm. Let's comfort their hearts, Lord. Cause them to know they're loved by this church. They're loved by you. Others have suffered illnesses, Lord. Some are trying to recover from those, Lord. It's not easy. Lord, I just pray you just give them strength. Help them know we pray for them constantly. We're longing for the will of God to come shining through, Lord. So bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. We have spent the last couple of sessions clawing our way through all the descriptions of the tabernacle and the articles that go in the tabernacle, the dress of... Aaron and the priest and so forth. And, um, but all of that, again, as we looked, all in, in many of the circumstances, looks forward to Christ. And Christ is the greater priest. Today, as we look at Exodus chapter 32, you're going to see, I hope I can point you that way. I don't know how far we'll get. We're going to just work verse by verse through this. But you'll see that Christ is the greater mediator. And that's what the book of Romans does over and over and over. The book of Hebrews does over and over. In fact, the New Testament does. It shows us that Christ is greater in every way. Now, you notice the title of the sermon is called, There is no life without the mediator. We have no life without the mediator. If the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, does not come and add flesh and become our representative... Die, beat death, resurrection, become our representative. We have no mediator. We cannot get to the presence of God. And so there's so much truth when you begin to even look at this narrative that is a sad narrative of the state of the hearts of the nation of Israel. But at the same time, it points to a greater, a greater mediator. One that can bring us into the presence of God. Now... Chapter 32 begins to pick up the narrative again. In in chapter 24, it ended, and we kind of went into all these articles and tabernacles and poles and gates and all the stuff that takes to build this tabernacle for the Lord to reside with this nation of Israel. And in chapter 24, verse 18, we are told that Moses was going to go up on the mountain for quite some time. In fact, it tells us there that he was going to go up for 40 days and 40 nights. By the time we get to 32, it shows us a clear contrast, which is amazing, what's happening on the top of the mountain and what's happening on the valley. Two 
completely contrasting things are taking place. People are displaying how depraved they are and how their hearts are full of wickedness. I have to remember the slavery of their heart had not found the freedom that God had brought them to yet. Remember, they were enslaved their whole life. 400 years they've been in Egypt, probably at least half of that, if not a little more. Um, they had been in slavery. All they knew is slavery. And, and though it was outward slavery, I think what God does here is he shows us that there is an inward slavery on their hearts. And they are so easily enslaved to sin. And one of the things we'll see tonight as we go through this is... You'll begin to recognize this in yourself, I hope. I hope you'll see some of the idols that lay in your heart that constantly want to slave, enslave you. But maybe there's a loved one or someone you've been praying for, and they, the Word of God just, you know, oh, that's great, great, great. But as soon as something comes along, they just run right back to slavery. And this really shows that with this nation. They were still enslavement. We're not following God as God intended them to be. Many people today who profess their faith in Christ still don't believe his word. They just don't believe his word. They'll think it's good, it's good for you, they'll come and listen and so forth, but they don't really believe it. And they find themselves just easily slipping back into that slavery of sin. And this is a problem, it's, it's shown through the Old Testament, but it's also shown in the New Testament. Paul goes into southern Galatia, and he plants churches. And then right after that, people come in behind them and begin to try to enslave them back into legalism. And Paul writes a letter to them called Galatians. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And of course, he's talking about legalism and trying to present yourself before God by your do's and don'ts and all that type of stuff. And, of course, they said, well, we believe in Jesus. But then people came along and said, oh, hey, believing in Jesus is a good thing. But you better do this, this, this. Don't eat that. Don't bring around these people and so forth. And in this church, and it seems like a, a generous portion of them, slid right back into that slavery. So we see this. And there's great parallels in the Old Testament that go along with the New Testament to help us understand that our freedom is in Christ. You know, that's why there's over 2,000 Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. Because everything is pointing towards the freedom we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it uses all these Old Testament truths and, and unfolds them and unpacks them as we get into the New Testament and see it fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's also clear that the absence of Moses, the mediator, and his strong leadership... And this mediator role left this void in the camp. Now, I want you to think about this. Moses is a type. We've talked about this as we work through this. So he, he is not Christ, but there are types within the Bible. Joseph was one. Moses is one. They reflect certain characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the type, which is Moses, is out of the camp and everything's falling apart. So what's the message? Take Christ out of the camp, seen through Moses here, and things will go off the rail quickly. This is why churches go apostate. This is why people fall away from the faith. All kinds of things. You remove Christ, everything falls apart. And you see that certainly in this text today. Remember this. 
Paul said to Timothy, for there is one God, one mediator, also between God and men, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. He is everything to us. And we have to continue to work on that, right? I, we get so caught up in this or that. We've got to remember, Christ, stay in the center of my life. When you pray for the will of God, you pray for the center of God's will, where Christ would be most glorified. When you're searching for the will of God, do you pray that way? Well, that's how he's most glorified. Well, God had exercised such great power to remove Israel from Egypt. Of course, we walked all through that already in Exodus. And he delivers them from their enemies. Now Moses is on the mountain and it's a time of testing. Let's see if they really believe me. Gone to church for a while. Let's see. And God will send tests into your life. To, to not that he doesn't know whether you're in the faith. He wants to show you where you don't trust him. And so Moses is absent and the people are exposed because they did not have faith in this living God yet. Interesting enough, Moses was on top of the mountain receiving this instruction of how Aaron was supposed to come into the presence of God. Meanwhile, Aaron's down in the valley facilitating some of the most wicked behavior ever. I mean, we just spent those last chapters. This is how Aaron is to be dressed. This is what he's supposed to wear. And here's his cleansing. And here's God to do that. Meanwhile, they're running a circus down the hill. And it's not looking good. So the rebellion is intensified because truly an ungrateful rejection of a God who delivered them. I hope you're, I think our church is really doing well and as always has in this. Just when I say stuff like hopefully just connection your mind. Listen to that statement and connect Christ in this. Rebellion intensifies by the ungrateful rejection of the great deliverance God has provided. The moment we fall out of gratitude for God, of all that we do, in floods all the things we want from him. And then we reject him because he doesn't do what we want when we want. And that's really this story in so many ways. Furthermore, all they had to do was look up. You're going to see, they're like, well, wait, we don't know what happened to Moses. Well, <laughs> the mountain is on fire. <laughs> There's a cloud and lightning and flames. And it's, you know, what do you think is going on up there? Look up. Remember, I've said this so many times in the series. Look up when you're struggling. Look up. Look to the Lord. There's this visible manifestation of evidence of him there. And even during their rebellion, think about this. During their rebellion, as we'll look tonight, God's still feeding them. They're getting manna every day. Isn't that amazing? And as we go through this, and I don't know how far I'll get tonight, but this is such a fun study. Do not start thinking about anybody else. <laughs> look, look introspectively of how we can be so ungrateful to a God who delivered us from the slavery of sin and gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And yet we'll complain. They also had 70 elders down there. We know that Joshua was up halfway up the mountain or somewhere on the mountain. He wasn't with Moses in the presence of God. But their 70 elders were there. And these were men that were set up to help judge and help, help them through difficulties. And, and yet, 
So many of these great gifts from God, they reject. So remember, don't let your heart quick to judge others. Remember, if it wasn't for there are great mediator, there go I. Let's look at a couple thoughts here. Number one, failing to trust God's timing will expose the idols of the heart. Failing, this is such good stuff, isn't this? I mean, I, I'm sitting here writing this stuff going, yes, God. <laughs> right? Because sometimes things happen like, uh, yeah, Lord, I don't think we needed that. Failing to trust God's timing will expose the idols of your heart. Look at verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, look at the way they say that. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, uh, there's some wrong theology, we do not know what has become of him. Well, this first verse here makes it clear that there's an impatience at the root of their sin. There's an impatience. God is not moving fast enough. He's not on our timeline. We want to get to the promised land, so we need a God who can finish the job. Isn't that interesting? Moses certainly has disappointed them. They're frustrated with his supposal uh, failure to return. Apparently they couldn't write on the ground one, two, he's coming. He said 40 days, I'm going. Didn't make it to the 41st. They'll keep committing this sin. I was thinking of several instances, but probably one that highlights it is they just could not take having God as their king. And so in 1 Samuel 8, what do they do? We want a king like the rest of the nations. And man, was that a mistake. I just want to, there's a lack of patience to be the way God wants them to be. I think it's a failing of the New Testament church in the 21st century as well. We want to be relevant. We think if we can be relevant, we'll have more of an effect on people's lives. Isn't that a rejection of the power of the Word of God? And I'm not saying we're not happy and greeting and all of that, and we don't teach application as we go along as we're doing tonight. But to toss out the word of God and not believe him in certain ways and do something man-centered ways, it just causes problems. And so many sins arise from our hearts when we desire to be like other people. And that's what they do. They would have been... Um, they, they would have known this plurality, what we call polytheistic type of worship. They would have seen all the different gods of Egypt. They certainly would have known the bull god of Egypt. It was down in the southern part of Egypt. This was a god that they had seen in their past enslavement. But it's quite possible of what God had called them to be as a holy nation that they just wanted to be, it was just a huge struggle with them, more like the pagan world around them. And it's such a pull, isn't it? You know, we're, we're, there are some of our young people, our college age and crossroads in here. And I know you guys feel this probably more than we do as we get older. As you get older, you're like, hmm, yeah, I don't really care. <laughs> but there's still, I mean, we can say that even in our 50s, 60s, 70s, or so forth. But there's still a pull. We, we love to be accepted. Nobody likes somebody that goes, oh, yeah, who dressed you, you know? 
So there's this pull, and this is a battle, and they were struggling with this already. They're just newly out of slavery and following God, and he's feeding them and drowning their enemies and, and giving them water out of rocks. He's doing all this for them, but it's not enough, and now this guy that you sent to lead us isn't here, so let's, we got to make another plan. It's not working. Notice in verse 1, they assemble around Aaron. And this is God in his omniscience telling them what's happening. Moses is still on the mountain, so he's, he's, he knows what's happening, so he's telling Moses because he knows all things, right? And they assemble around Moses, I mean Aaron here, and they saw him as possible the path to get their own way. They're looking for a weak link. They know Moses wouldn't cave, but maybe Aaron will. And it's possible that this was the first time they approached Aaron. Maybe it's, it's possible, and there's enough room in the text as I studied of it, that they probably did this repeatedly, trying to get him to do something. And they may have worn him down. And this may have been Aaron's response to Moses, like, hey, what happened down here? Well, they just wouldn't let up. But regardless, it seems that they were striving to get Aaron to make an idol that represented God... And then this idol, this new idol that represents a living God, I don't think they're rejecting the living God. They saw all that he did. They just want some, some idol, something that represents him, so they, that new idol can lead them into the promised land. I think they're sold on the promised land. Milk and honey and flowing rivers and all, you know, of course, all that. Yeah, let's go. We just need a God that's going to do this because it doesn't look like Moses is coming back. If this was the case, then it was a rejection of the second commandment, wasn't it? Remember, Moses already been down with the Ten Commandments. And they already said in chapter 20, 20, they said, all that God has said we will do. They said it together in unison. And the second commandment simply says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of anything on heaven or earth. And so you can see that they've already creamed the first command. And a lot of this is the effects of time in Egypt. Listen, you want to stay and play in the world and then play with Christ on Sunday, you're going to lose. Because the world is powerful. And it's seeking to love its own and to change you. Furthermore, it's also a violation of the first commandment, isn't it? Seeking other gods. You shouldn't have no other gods before you. Not just graven images and not conforming these images, but you should have other gods before you. And so they're seeking this other god to lead them into the promised land. And this, this is just an outward omission that they believe God had abandoned them or this Moses or God's not going to do what he said. And there's a rejection of God in that. And anytime you get into idolatry, it is a rejection of God. And so that's why we must deal with even our own, as Christians, idols that sit on our heart. Because at least in that area of our life, we reject God, at least in that little area. You're not doing what I want you to do fast enough and right enough. And so we have to look at those things, don't we? See, this proves they failed to grasp the uniqueness and the glory of Yahweh. You say, how can you not see him? I mean, we look at this from the New Testament. We go, man, he's splitting seas, washing dead soldiers up at their feet, flies quail in for dinner, feeds manna. See, I, I, and I think on our series on Sunday mornings as we work through the, through the doctrine of salvation, and please, if you missed this last Sunday, please watch that before you get to this Sunday. But we saw the deadness of man. Because you and I look at this. If you're a believer and you read through Exodus, you go, how can they not see him? 
That's how dead and blind you are when you're not saved. And so there's this rejection of his glory in his person. And, and maybe they're believing even in the intervention of some deities, which would be certainly operated by Satan. I mean, there, there's a lot written on this, and you got to weigh through this because some people read a little more into that, and a lot of people think there's a lot of satanic stuff in there. It certainly could have been. Um, but the main point is they wanted something else beside God to lead them. Now, which commandment they broke worse is difficult to decide when you study this. But clearly the people were conditioned and impacted by cultures around them, right? And now, they're, now instead of worshiping the creator, what are they doing? Yeah, Romans 1, worshiping the creation. Now, there's several real sin failures here just in this very first verse. First... Though they knew how God used Moses, when you think about how he used Moses, they would still be in Egypt if God wouldn't have used Moses. They seem to downplay his significance, right? Well, he's gone. Give us an idol. And they gave up on the mediator. He is the mediator. There is no getting to that God who split seas and drowned your enemies except you have the mediator. So that's significant. You reject the mediator, you're in a lot of trouble. Am I talking New Testament enough for you? This is, this is important. Second, there's a clear and willful rejection of looking to God. He's right up there. Look up. Look into your own eyes. See the manifestation that he's showing you that he's there meeting with, with Moses. And look, the best way to undermine truth in your life is to keep God out of the picture as much as possible. And if you want to go on with your sin, you've got to push God away somehow. You all know this, don't we? We know this. If I want to press in on something that's an idol in my heart and it's starting to take over and it wants this no matter what, I've got to get rid of this God thing in some way because I can't do it if he's there in my thoughts and my conscience. And that's what they're trying to do. I mean, they must have turned their back on that mountain. <laughs> and then third, they use a lot of half-truths here with evasive language. You get around people who are trying to live in sin, they use a lot of half-truths. And they may say truthful things, but then they'll excuse it because of their issues that they're going through. So it's clear they know where Moses was and why he was there, but in order to move forward, it seems they had... To suggest that he's dead. <laughs> right? I mean, look at the verse 1. He says, as for this guy, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. We don't know what happened to him. For all we know, he's dead. Don't, don't miss subtle ways that you protect idols of your heart. You have to ask God to help you expose those things. That's why you get counsel. That's why you have accountability in your life. You meet with other people. You have Bible studies. You pray together because they're called blinders because you can't what? See them. Verse 2. We're really moving fast here, aren't we? Aaron said to them, <laughs> here comes Aaron, tear off the gold rings which are on your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Now it's clear Aaron was not able to cope with the pressure here, right? Of such a rebellion. And so 
when Aaron was with Moses, think about it, he was so strong. When he was with Moses, he's so strong. He walks in the presence of Pharaoh. He has this boldness to confront. Remember, he's speaking most of the time for Moses, especially early on during the plagues that were coming. He's bold and confident as he confronts the godlessness of the Egyptian ruler. But now left to himself, he can't stand against this rebellious nation. Now, I think it's possible that Aaron was trying to deter the people here. He knew this was a grave sin. He, he knew what, that, that God had set him apart in some way. And so I think some of the signs we can see that he's trying, at least, but not doing a good job, he tells them to tear off the golden earrings. And I thought that was interesting. Um, there's words, simple words in the Hebrew that just tells you to take something off. But notice in the translation it says tear them off. If you want to follow, you want to make a different God, this is going to be painful. And what are you willing to do to make some other God? And you watch people who have gods in their life, addictions, anything. I mean, anything that you want to do that you know is against God, you'll, you'll hurt yourself to do it. And I think that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to slow them down here. See, look, they were slaves. They, they were common slaves. They watched the Egyptians parade around in their gold, and they did their work and built their cities and did all that. But now the, the tables have turned. The slaves have become like the masters. And then Judges 8.24 tells us that the tribes around them wore jewelry just like this. So this, this also confirms that, they're, that they were already struggling with identity, weren't they? They want to be like the Egyptians or like the tribes around them. But it does show us also that they really plundered Egypt. It says, notice the text says that they all had them. The wives had earrings, the sons, the daughters. Everybody's wearing this gold around them, very precious metal. And you think about the size of the nation of Israel. Estimates are two to four million people came out of Egypt. Can you imagine a pile of gold? You could build a big bull calf. It wasn't hard to do. People go, how, you know, how can that be much, that much gold? You know? And then we don't know that it was solid. Doubtlessly, it wasn't. You're going to take two or four billion people throwing big, heavy gold earrings in? Yeah, you're going to build a whole herd. But if Aaron was trying to make it difficult and trying to help the people question this in their minds, he would be very disappointed. Look at verse 3. And then all the people tore off their earrings. Yep, okay, rip. Maybe it cost them some blood. And, you know, a lot of these things were pierced and put on that way. They didn't have, um, go down to the mall, you know, get all that done. And they, the gold rings were in their ears and they brought them to Aaron. And so, so notice the word all there. It shows that this was not just a small group. And, and you know, when you start studying this, you're going, I hope there's just, a, you know, maybe a small group of rebellion going on here. Most, most of the people say, oh, we love God. We will never do this. Well, I think it's just the opposite. I think this is the majority, an overwhelming majority of people. And doubtlessly, there was godly saints who believed God, had seen his miracles. Their heart had been changed, and they did not participate in this. In fact, we know part of this because the Levite tribe rises up, and we'll see probably next time, where they go to slaying people. But this is what it takes to bring a nation to its knees. It doesn't come to its knees with a small group that rebels against God. 
takes the majority. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? I think we're seeing the teeter taught. I think the majority are falling away and nations fall this way. And, and here it is, this majority now says we want a God to lead us. And, and unfortunately, in verse 3 and 4, we begin to see Aaron bow to the request. And he allows this rebellion to gain momentum, right? And now he's confronted with this pile of gold before him. And Aaron feels he has no other option but to cave into their desires. And after all, he asked them to bring it to him, didn't he? Look at verse 4. He took, from, he took this from their hands their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made it into a molten calf, and they said, this is your God. Notice they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's really sad, isn't it? Moses is still on the mountain. This is his God and his omniscience is telling exactly what's going on down there, right? And so here we find some very disturbing terms. He fashioned it, molten calf. These are all evidence of craftsmanship putting the hand to the plow, doing something. This isn't just like, well, it just came out of the fire, right? And it's so interesting, Aaron's weak understanding of God, he has no idea God is telling exactly to Moses what he did. He fashioned it. He put hand to it. It took effort, it took design, it took thought. And such idle... I think sometimes we try to fool ourselves and we think that idol, idolatry of our heart, you know, is just maybe a weakness. And certainly it becomes a weakness, but to have a true idol sit on your heart, it takes work. You have to love it. You actually have to desire it at some level. You go, I hate my sin. Well, I hope you do, but there's part of it you love because that's why it's there. And so it takes effort. Now, the Egyptians were known for bull calves. I said this already. But even the surrounding areas of Syria and Mesopotamia had these golden bull calves that they worshipped. And many of the pagan nations believed that their invisible deities would come sit on their idols. And you can see just the effect of the culture upon this young baby nation. But here the Israelites were asking for a representation of their God. You have to understand that. They, it's not like they don't believe in a living God. The, the mountain's on fire. They just need someone to be their mediator now. Moses isn't coming back, so now this bull calf is going to be what Moses was supposed to be. Isn't that interesting? Have you thought that? Thought about that? Aaron provides them with this idol. And notice in the middle of verse 4, they say, This is your God. They say that. So Aaron crafts the idol, but the people take it from there and they present it to the nation and say, this is your idol, this is the heart of the nation. Look at verse 5. Now when Aaron saw all this, he built an altar before it. Oh, Aaron. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now it seems that once Aaron saw the popular rep reception of this idol, he is compelled to go further into false worship. He gets caught up. He gets caught up into false worship. False worship is very appealing. We see it in the church today. 
It's built on emotionalism and lacks truth. And it'll sweep people in and it'll lead people astray. I think Satan uses it tremendously in many churches today. But notice what happens. He starts building an altar to worship. And altars have been very prominent from Genesis to the time Moses went up on the mountain. They have built altars to God humbly out of uncarved stones and and in, in a very humble way, honoring God and offering up animals as a sacrifice to God. But it seems here that Aaron is striving to rob God of his glory, even though he thinks that maybe this is for him. And it's just this gross representation of God's design of worship. Notice Aaron does not say, we'll have a feast in verse 5. Tomorrow we'll have a feast He does not say we'll have a feast to the calf. What's he say? To the Lord. So don't get confused. They're they're trying to replace Moses with this bull calf. And they're trying to worship God through this bull calf. They're trying to worship what they think is a living God up on this mountain. And they're just grossly have misrepresented God. And this happens all the time when people don't believe all of the word of God. This is why there's so many different religions and so many offshoots of, quote, Christianity. Because people pick and choose what they want. We have to believe in all of the Bible. But regardless, he built an altar in front of this bull calf. And perhaps... Perhaps delaying the festival for the following day, maybe, I'm trying to help Aaron out here just a little bit, maybe he's stalling. Man, it's been 40 days, come on, Aaron. Come on, Moses, get off the mountain. But notice the emphasis of the text. It clearly shows that Aaron and the people had gone far beyond God's commands by associating worship with idols. And and that just opened this door and beckoning to to this impurity of worship. In reality, they were creating another religion, weren't they? By substituting their own idea of what God clearly taught them. So this type of false worship would plague the nation all the time. You get to the the kings, right? Uh, David's king. um, Solomon's a great king. Has his struggles. He gives birth to two boys. They split the nation. And guess what Jeroboam does? The very first king, when the nation split, he builds two golden bull calves an attempt to keep the nation, the northern kingdom, from going down to Judah to worship at the temple. And they revert right back to it. Look at verse 6 with me. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings, this is still the Lord telling Moses this, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, the next day there was no sign of Moses, so the people just proceed with the feast just as Aaron proposed to them. In early morning, I think that's interesting. If you know, you have to understand the climate. You know, they didn't have coffee maker. Beep beep. You know, time to get up. You got up and did your chores because it gets hot in the desert, and you did them early. And you got things going, but notice they got up early in the morning to have this godless festival. What a seems to be this errant view of God now fully comes off the rails, doesn't it? It's off the rails. They're offering, notice the verse, they're offering burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then this full, 
the words there, if you follow them out, it's in immoral practices. These are not happy dances at your wedding because it's such a great day. They have embraced the immorality of the nations. There was awful things going on, far more than probably the scriptures allude to us, but we see some, some uses of verbs and thoughts in this that show us that this was probably immorality, and then the reaction of God shows us how bad it is. See, sin always misrepresents God. That's why if we don't repent, our view of God will change. It'll just change us. People who want to live in sin, pretty soon they begin to dial in and create a new God. That's how they justify what they do. You begin to twist God's word, because you have to, because you know what it says, but you don't want to obey it, so you have to twist God's word. And then you look for people who will join you, because then you feel more justified in it. And you can see the nation doing this. Soon you bow down to human desires over God's word. And then the idols of your heart will grow out of the flames of your passion for what you desire. And they'll just lead you down that road. This is why we work hard when you come in for counseling, trying to help you pull back those hard layers that that idol lays in there. And you'll fight with us at times, trying, trying to fight that. And we're trying to help you pull that back so you can see that. So you can confess that and repent of it and turn from it. So you can have joy and you can walk with God. Number two. (laughs) Sorry. The omniscience of God in the presence of a mediator. The omniscience of God in the presence of a mediator. Now don't forget Moses is a type here as we look at this. So Moses has had a great retreat. Forty days and forty nights with God. I mean, he has had a ball, right? Talking with God in the perfect holy presence of God. And no doubt Moses was so excited to come down and tell the nation what he learned. You send me off to a pastor's conference, I'm come back. You think I'm fired up now? Give me some time where some preachers are feeding me for a little while. I come back just racing, don't I? Think about this. Moses has had this intense time with God on the mount. It's intense, man. And doubtless he's looking forward to telling these people. But then the whole mood shatters as the Lord in his omniscience telling Moses what's going on in the camp. You know, in Moses, he, he hears, as we see, we're going to see here, he hears of God's just punishment of the people. And all of a sudden, instead of saying, yeah, wipe them out, you're right, God. We had a good time. I'm just going to stay up. Let's do the nation with me. He says, well, hold on, God. And he all of a sudden puts that mediator hat right back on. And he starts to mediate on the behalf of the people. See, this shows Moses' concern for God's people. He has a deep love. He won't abandon them. He is a picture of Christ. But at the same time, displays Moses' unwavering commitment to God's glory. He doesn't want that to be lost on these people. So look at verse 7 with me. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now notice, even God's changing some language here. The ones you brought up. (laughs) I get this. (laughs) These are your kids, honey. (laughs) Your sons did this. No. Well, notice the 
frustration even in the speech of God, right? Sinful crisis is broken out below. And immediate action is called for. Notice it says, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God has seen their dismissal of himself. And he speaks in such a way to Moses that displays that they have disowned me and have turned to their own strengths. They have corrupted themselves. That's pretty intense language. If anybody ever calls you corrupt, that's not a good term. And when the Almighty, the Holy One, calls them corrupt, he's looking dead into their hearts. Now, this is referring to this depravity as on full display. It's got out of their heart and it's leaked all over the place, right? And it's rendered them as an offense to God. And you can't study the Old Testament, particularly passages like this, and not see the gravity of sin, how offensive it is to this holy and beautiful and mighty God who is full of grace and compassion and mercy, how, how sin offends him. And that should bother us, right, as Christians. But it's so easy to go, yeah, I wish they would get their act together. We've got to look at ourselves, right? God uses really strong language here, doesn't he? He wants us to see the gravity of sin. Look at verse 8 with me. Have they, quickly, they, they, they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. And they have made for themselves a molten calf. And have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land. I mean, if you don't believe in the omniscience of God. You, I mean, he is just, most go, it's word for word what they are doing down there. It's instant news. Because God sees everything. I think what he's saying here is very little time has expired since I made a covenant with them. And the last time they reacted to my covenant was chapter 24, just 40 days ago, 3 through 8. And there they promised to do all that God had promised, God had commanded them. They've done it twice. Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 24, we'll do all that you command. And now 40 days later, they have replaced me. And it was a command of their king here that they ignored. They ignored the king. They ignored the covenant king. Remember in Galatians, Paul uses some similar language? We already talked about Galatians a little bit. In chapter 1, verse 6, as he starts to confront this church, he says, I'm amazed that, that you are so quickly deserting him, that's Christ, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. So amazed. Man... Man is capable of terrible things. And if God doesn't truly change our heart, we're capable of things that we just can't imagine. Now notice the proof of their sin was seen in their actions. In shaping the calf, he says, and worshiping it and sacrificing it, God's catching all this. And this is this omission of their sin before God. They don't even know they're omitting it. But as they do these things, God sees it as an omission. And this was no feast to the Lord and whatever Aaron thought he could accomplish, he failed greatly. And the character and the idols of their heart were truly exposed. And God sees it. And they are loyal to themselves and they're not loyal to God. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this, these people. I've seen this people. <laughs> this is um, omnis, is, um, excuse me, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. And behold, they are an obstinate people. 
you have an older translation, it might say stiff-necked. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, let's go to the ranch. <laughs> it's referring to the neck of animals. 